Book Eleven, Part A of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Claude Banta. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrebe. Book Eleven, A.D. forty-seven to forty-eight, Part A, during the reign of Claudius. Translator's note: the four following books and the beginning of Book Eleven, which are lost, contained the history of a period of nearly ten years, from A.D. thirty-seven to A.D. forty-seven. These years included the reign of Caius Caesar, Caligula the son of Germanicus by the elder Agrippina, and the first six years of the reign of Claudius. Caius Caesar's reign was three years, ten months, and eight days in duration. Claudius, Tiberius Claudius Drusus Nero Germanicus, the brother of Germanicus, succeeded him at the age of fifty, and reigned from A.D. 41 to A.D. 54. The eleventh book of the Annals opens with the seventh year of Claudius's reign. The power of his wife Messalina was then at its height. She was, it seems, jealous of a certain Popeia Sabina, who is mentioned in Book Thirteen, as having surpassed in beauty all the ladies of her day. This Popeia was the daughter of the Popeia Sabinus alluded to in Book Six, and the mother of the more famous Popeia afterwards the wife of the emperor Nero. Messalina contrived to involve this lady and her lover, Valerius Asiaticus, in a ruinous charge. Asiaticus had been twice consul, once under Caius Caesar, a second time under Claudius in A.D. 46. He was rich as well as noble. The eleventh book as we have it begins with the account of his prosecution by means Messalina, who, with the help of Lucius Vitellius, Vitellius, father of the Vitellius, afterwards emperor, effected his ruin. Messalina believed that Valerius Asiaticus, who had been twice consul, was one of Popeia's old lovers. At the same time she was looking greedily at the gardens which Lucullus had begun, and which Asiaticus was now adorning with singular magnificence, and so she suborned Suilius to accuse both him and Popeia. With Suilius was associated Sosibius, tutor to Britannicus, who was to give Claudius an apparently friendly warning to beware of a power and wealth which threatened the throne. Asiaticus, he said, had been the ringleader in the murder of a Caesar, and then had not feared to face an assembly of the Roman people to own the deed, and challenge its glory for his own. Thus grown famous in the capital, and with a renown widely spread through the provinces, he was planning a journey to the armies of Germany. Born at Vienna, and supported by numerous and powerful connections, he would find it easy to rouse nations allied to his house. Claudius made no further inquiry, but sent Crispinus, commander of the Praetorians, with troops in hot haste, as though to put down a revolt. Crispinus found him at Bai, loaded him with chains, and hurried him to Rome. 
no hearing before the Senate was granted him, it was in the Emperor's chamber, in the presence of Messalina, that he was heard. There Suilius accused him of corrupting the troops, of binding them by bribes and indulgences to share in every crime, of adultery with Popea, and finally of unmanly vice. It was at this last that the accused broke silence, and burst out with the words, Question thy own son, Suilius, they will own my manhood. Then he entered on his defense. Claudius he moved profoundly, and he even drew tears from Messalina, but as she left the chamber to wipe them away, she warned Vitellius not to let the man escape. She hastened herself to effect Popea's destruction, and hired agents to drive her to suicide by the terrors of a prison. Caesar, meanwhile, was so unconscious that a few days afterwards he asked her husband Scipio, who was dining with him, why he sat down to table without his wife, and was told in reply that she had paid the debt of nature. When Claudius began to deliberate about the acquittal of Asiaticus, Vitellius, with tears in his eyes, spoke of his old friendship with the accused, and of their joint homage to the emperor's mother Antonia. He then briefly reviewed the services of Asiaticus to the state, his recent campaign in the invasion of Britain, and everything else which seemed likely to win compassion, and suggested that he should be freed to choose his death. Claudius's reply was in the same tone of mercy. Some friends urged on Asiaticus the quiet death of self-starvation, but he declined it with thanks. He took his usual exercise, then bathed and dined cheerfully, and saying that he had better have fallen by the craft of Tiberius, or the fury of Caius Caesar, than by the treachery of a woman and the shameless mouth of Vitellius, he opened his veins, but not till he had inspected his funeral pyre, and directed its removal to another spot, lest the smoke should hurt the thick foliage of the trees. So complete was his calmness even to the last. The senators were then convoked, and Suilius proceeded to find new victims in two knights of the first rank who bore the surname of Petra. The real cause of their destruction was that they had lent their house for the meetings of Nestor and Popea, but it was a vision of the night that was the actual charge against one of them. He had, it was alleged, beheld Claudius crowned with a garland of wheat, the ears of which were turned downwards, and from this appearance he foretold scanty harvests. Some said that it was a vine wreath, of which the leaves were white which he saw, and that he interpreted it to signify the death of the emperor after the turn of autumn. It is, however, beyond dispute, that in consequence of some dream, whatever it was, both the man and his brother perished. Fifteen hundred thousand sesterces and the decorations of the praetorship were voted to Crispinus. Vitellius bestowed a million on Sosibius, for giving Britannicus the benefit of his teaching, and Claudius that of his counsels. I may add, that when Scipio was called on for his opinion, he replied, As I think what all men think about the deeds of Popea, suppose me to say what all men say. A graceful compromise, this between the affection of the husband and the necessities of the senator. 
Thuilius, after this, plied his accusations without cessation or pity, and his audacity had many rivals, by assuming to himself all the functions of laws and magistrates, the emperor had left exposed everything which invited plunder, and of all articles of public merchandise nothing was more venal than the treachery of advocates. Thus it happened that one Samius, a Roman knight of the first rank, who had paid four hundred thousand sesterces to Suilius, stabbed himself in the advocate's house, on ascertaining his collusion with the adversary. Upon this, following the lead of Silius, consul-elect, whose elevation and fall I shall in due course relate, the senators rose in a body, and demanded the enforcement of the Cincian law, an old enactment which forbade any one to receive a fee or a gift for pleading a cause. When the men at whom this strong censure was leveled loudly protested, Silius, who had a quarrel with Suilius, attacked them with savage energy. He cited as examples the orators of old, who had thought fame with posterity the fairest recompense of eloquence, and, apart from this, he said, the first noble accomplishments was debased by sordid services, and even good faith could not be upheld in its integrity when men looked at the greatness of their gains. If lawsuits turned to no one's profit, there would be fewer of them. As it was, quarrels, accusations, hatreds, and wrongs were encouraged, in order that as the violence of disease brings fees to the physician, so the corruption of the forum might enrich the advocate. They should remember Caius Essini and Messala, and in later days Oruntius and Esserninius, men raised by a blameless life and by eloquence to the highest honors. So spoke the consul-elect, and others agreed with him. A resolution was being framed to bring the guilty under the law of extortion, when Suilius and Cosutianus and the rest, who saw themselves threatened with punishment rather than trial, for their guilt was manifest, gathered round the emperor and prayed forgiveness for the past. When he had nodded assent, they began to plead their cause. Who, they asked, can be so arrogant as to anticipate in hope an eternity of renown? It is for the needs and the business of life that the resource of eloquence is acquired, thanks to which no one for want of an advocate is at the mercy of the powerful. But eloquence cannot be obtained for nothing. Private affairs are neglected in order that a man may devote himself to the business of others. Some support life by the profession of arms, some by cultivating land. No work is expected from any one of which he has not before calculated the profits. It was easy for Asinius and Messala, enriched with the prizes of the conflict between Anthony and Augustus, it was easy for Oruntius and Acerninius, the heirs of wealthy families, to assume grand heirs. We have examples at hand. How great were the fees for which Publius Clodius and Caius Curia were wont to speak. We are ordinary senators, seeking in the tranquility of the state for none but peaceful gains. You must consider the plebeian, how he gains distinction from the gown, take away the rewards of a profession, and the profession must perish. The emperor thought that these arguments, though less noble, 
were not without force, he limited the fee which might be taken to ten thousand sesterces, and those who exceeded this limit were liable to the penalties of extortion. About this same time, Mithridates, of whom I have before spoken as having ruled Armenia, and having been imprisoned by order of Caius Caesar, made his way back to his kingdom at the suggestion of Claudius, and in reliance on the help of Pharsamanes. This Pharsamanes, who was the king of the Iberians, and Mithridates's brother, now told him that the Parthians were divided, and that the highest questions of empire being uncertain, lesser matters were neglected. Gotarses, among his many cruelties, had caused the death of his brother Artabanus, with wife and son. Hence his people feared for themselves, and sent for Vardanes. Ever ready for daring achievements, Vardanes traversed 375 miles in two days, and drove before him the surprised and terrified Gotarses. Without moment's delay he seized the neighboring governments, Seleucia alone refusing his rule. Rage against the place, which indeed had also revolted from his father, rather than considerations of policy, made him embarrass himself with the siege of a strong city, which the defense of a river flowing by it, with fortifications and supplies, had thoroughly secured. Gotarses, meanwhile, aided by the resources of the Dahi and Hyrcanians, renewed the war, and Vardanes, compelled to raise the siege of Seleucia, encamped on the plains of Bactria. Then it was that while the forces of the east were divided, and hesitated which side they should take, the opportunity of occupying Armenia was presented to Mithridates, who had the vigorous soldiers of Rome to storm the fortified heights, while his Iberian cavalry scoured the plain. The Armenians made no resistance after their governor, Demonax, had ventured on a battle and had been routed. Cotes, king of lesser Armenia, to whom some of the nobles inclined, caused some delay, but he was stopped by a dispatch from Claudius, and then everything passed into the hands of Mithridates, who showed more cruelty than was wise in a new ruler. The Parthian princes, however, just when they were beginning battle, came to a sudden agreement, on discovering a plot among their people, which Gotarses revealed to his brother. At first they approached each other with hesitation, then, joining right hands, they promised before the altars of their gods to punish the treachery of their enemies, and to yield one to the other. Vardanes seemed more capable of retaining rule. Gotarses, to avoid all rivalry, retired into the depths of Hyrcania. When Vardanes returned, Seleucia capitulated to him, seven years after its revolt, little to the credit of the Parthians, whom a single city had so long defied. He then visited the strongest governments, and was eager to recover Armenia, but was stopped by Vibius Marsus, governor of Syria, who threatened war. Meanwhile, Gotarses, who repented of having relinquished his throne at the solicitation of the nobility, to whom subjection is a special hardship in peace, collected a force. Vardanes marched against him to the river Sharinda, 
A fierce battle was fought over the passage, Vardani's winning a complete victory, and in a series of successful engagements subduing the intermediate tribes as far as the river Sindis, which is the boundary between the Dahi and the Aryans. There his successes terminated. The Parthians, victorious though they were, rebelled against distant service. So, after erecting monuments on which he recorded his greatness, and the tribute won from peoples from whom no Araskid had won it before, he returned covered with glory, and therefore the more haughty and more intolerable to his subjects than ever. They arranged a plot, and slew him when he was off his guard and intent upon the chase. He was still in his first youth, and might have been one of the illustrious few among aged princes, had he sought to be loved by his subjects as much as to be feared by his foes. The murder of Vardanes threw the affairs of Parthia into confusion, as the people were in doubt who should be summoned to the throne. Many inclined to go Tarses, some to Meherdates, a descendant of Phrates, who was a hostage in our hands. Finally Gotarses prevailed. Established in the palace, he drove the Parthians by his cruelty and profligacy to send a secret entreaty to the Roman emperor that Meherdates might be allowed to mount the throne of his ancestors. It was during this consulship, in the eight hundredth year after the foundation of Rome and the sixty-fourth after their celebration by Augustus, that the secular games were exhibited. I say nothing of the calculations of the two princes, which I have sufficiently discussed in my history of the emperor Domitian, for he also exhibited secular games, at which indeed, being one of the priesthood of the fifteen and praetor at the time, I specially assisted. It is in no boastful spirit that I mention this, but because this duty has immemorially belonged to the College of the Fifteen, and the praetors have performed the chief functions in these ceremonies. While Claudius sat to witness the games of the circus, some of the young nobility acted on horseback the Battle of Troy. Among them was Britannicus, the emperor's son, and Lucius Domitius, who became soon afterwards by adoption heir to the empire with the surname of Nero, the stronger popular enthusiasm which greeted him was taken to presage his greatness. It was commonly reported that snakes had been seen by his cradle, which they seemed to guard. A fabulous tale invented to match the marvels of other lands. Nero, never a disparager of himself, was wont to say that but one snake at most had been seen in his chamber. Something, however, of popular favor was bequeathed to him from the remembrance of Germanicus, whose only male descendant he was, and the pity felt for his mother Agrippina was increased by the cruelty of Messalina, who, always her enemy, and then more furious than ever, was only kept from planning an accusation and suborning informers by a new and almost insane passion, she had grown so frenetically enamored of Caius Silius, the handsomest of the young nobility of Rome, that she drove from his bed Junia Silana, a high-born lady, and had her lover wholly to herself. 
Silius was not unconscious of his wickedness and his peril, but a refusal would have ensured destruction, and he had some hope of escaping exposure. The prize, too, was great, so he consoled himself by awaiting the future and enjoying the present. As for her, careless of concealment, she went continually with a numerous retinue to his house. She haunted his steps, showered him on wealth and honors, and at last, as though empire had passed to another, the slaves, the freedmen, the very furniture of the emperor were to be seen in the possession of the paramour. Claudius, meanwhile, who knew nothing about his wife, and was busy with his functions as censor, published edicts severely rebuking the lawlessness of the people in the theatra, when they insulted Caius Pomponius, an ex-consul, who furnished verses for the stage and certain ladies of rank. He introduced, too, a law restraining the cruel greed of the usurers, and forbidding them to lend at interest sums repayable on a father's death. He also conveyed by an aqueduct into Rome the waters which flow from the hills of Simbrua, and he likewise invented and published for use some new letters, having discovered, as he said, that even the Greek alphabet had not been completed at once. It was the Egyptians who first symbolized ideas, and that, by the figure of animals, these recordings, the most ancient of all human history, are still seen engraved on stone. The Egyptians also claim to have invented the alphabet, which the Phoenicians, they say, by means of their superior seamanship introduced into Greece, and of which they appropriated the glory, giving out that they had discovered what they had really been taught. Tradition, indeed, says that Cadmus, visiting Greece in a Phoenician fleet, was the teacher of this art to its yet barbarous tribes. According to one account, it was Cercrops of Athens, or Linus of Thebes, or Palmides of Argos in Trojan times who invented the shapes of sixteen letters, and others, chiefly Simnides, added the rest. In Italy, the Etrurians learnt them from Demaratus of Corinth, and the Aborigines from the Arcadian Evander, and so the Latin letters have the same form as the oldest Greek characters. At first, too, our alphabet was scanty, and additions were afterwards made. Following this precedent, Claudius added three letters, which were employed during his reign and subsequently disused. These may still be seen on the tablets of brass set up in the squares and temples, on which new statutes are published. Claudius then brought before the Senate the subject of the College of Haruspices, that, as he said, the oldest of Italian sciences might not be lost through negligence. It had often happened in evil days for the Senate that advisers had been summoned, at whose suggestion ceremonies had been restored and observed more duly for the future. The nobles of Euturia, whether of their own accord or at the instigation of the Roman Senate, had retained this science, making it the inheritance of distinct families. It was now less zealously studied, through the general indifference to all sound learning and to the growth of foreign superstitions. At present all is well, but we must show gratitude to the favor of heaven 
by taking care that the rites observed during times of peril may not be forgotten in prosperity. A resolution of the Senate was accordingly passed, charging the pontiffs to see what should be retained or reformed with respect to the haruspices. It was in the same year that the Cherusci asked Rome for a king. Mm -hmm. They had lost all their nobles in their civil wars, and there was left but one scion of the royal house, Italicus by name, who lived at Rome. On the father's side he was descended from Flavus, the brother of Arminius. His mother was the daughter of Catumeris, chief of the Shati. The youth himself was of distinguished beauty, a skillful horseman and swordsman, both after our fashion and that of his country. So the emperor made him a present of money, furnished him with an escort, and bade him enter with a good heart on the honors of his house. Never before, he said, had a native of Rome, no hostage but a citizen, gone to mount a foreign throne. At first his arrival was welcome to the Germans, and they crowded to pay him court, for he was untainted by any spirit of faction, and showed the same hearty goodwill to all, practicing sometimes the courtesy and temperance which can never offend, but oftener those excesses of wine and lust in which barbarians delight. He was winning fame among his neighbors, and even far beyond them, when some who had found their fortune in party feuds, jealous of his power, fled to the tribes on the border, protesting that Germany was being robbed of her ancient freedom, and that the might of Rome was on the rise. Is there really, they said, no native of this country to fill the place of king without raising the son of the spy Flavus above all his fellows? It is idle to put forward the name of Arminius, had even the son of Arminius come to the throne after growing to manhood on a hostile soil, he might well be dreaded, corrupted as he would be by the bread of dependence, by slavery, by luxury, by all foreign habits. But if Italicus had his father's spirit, no man, be it remembered, had ever waged war against his country and his home more savagely than that father. By these and like appeals they collected a large force. No less numerous were the partisans of Italicus. He was no intruder, they said, on an unwilling people. He had obeyed a call, superior as he was to all others in noble birth. Should they not put his valor to the test, and see whether he showed himself worthy of his uncle Arminius and his grandfather Catumeris? He need not blush, because his father had never relinquished the loyalty which, with the consent of the Germans, he had promised to Rome. The name of liberty was a lying pretext in the mouths of men who, base in private, dangerous in public life, had nothing to hope except from civil discord. The people enthusiastically applauded him. After a fierce conflict among the barbarians, the king was victorious. Subsequently, in his good fortune, he fell into a despot's pride, was dethroned, was restored by the help of the Langobardi, and still, in prosperity or adversity, did mischief to the interests of the Cheruscan nation. It was during the same period that the Chaussi, free as it happened from dissension at home, 
and emboldened by the death of Sancaninius, made, while Corbulo was on his way, an inroad into Lower Germany, under the leadership of Genascus. The man was of the tribe of the Canine Fatis, had served long as our auxiliary, had then deserted, and, getting some light vessels, had made piratical descents specially on the coast of Gaul, inhabited, he knew, by a wealthy and unwarlike population. Corbulo, meanwhile, entered the province with careful preparation, and soon winning a renown of which that campaign was the beginning, he brought his triremes up the channel of the Rhine, and the rest of his vessels up the estuaries and canals to which they were adapted. Having sunk the enemy's flotilla, driven out Ganascus, and brought everything into good order, he restored the discipline of former days among legions, which had forgotten the labors and toils of the soldier, and delighted only in plunder. No one was to fall out of the line, no one was to fight without orders. At the outposts, on guard, in the duties of day and of night, they were always to be under arms. One soldier, it was said, had suffered death for working at the trenches without his sword, another for wearing nothing as he dug but his poignard. These extreme and possibly false stories at least had their origin in the general's real severity. We may be sure that he was strict and implacable to serious offenses when such sternness in regard to trifles could be believed of him. The fear thus inspired variously affected his own troops and the enemy. Our men gained fresh valor. The barbarians felt their pride broken. The Frisians, who had been hostile or disloyal since the revolt which had been begun by the defeat of Lucius Erpronius, gave hostages and settled down on territories marked out by Corbulo, who at the same time gave them a senate, magistrates, and a constitution. That they might not throw off their obedience, he built a fort among them, while he sent envoys to invite the greater Chausi to submission and to destroy Genascus by stratagem. This stealthy attempt on the life of a deserter and a traitor was not unsuccessful, nor was it anything ignoble. Yet the Chausi were violently roused by the man's death, and Corbulo was now sowing the seeds of another revolt, thus getting a reputation which many liked, but of which many thought ill. Why, men asked, was he irritating the foe? His disasters will fall on the Senate. If he is successful, so famous a hero will be a danger to peace, and a formidable subject for a timid emperor. Claudius accordingly forbade fresh attacks on Germany, so emphatically as to order the garrisons to be withdrawn to the left bank of the Rhine. End of Book 11, Part A